Hi, Steve. Well, hello there. How are you? I'm very well. Good. Thanks for joining. I know you're a, a crazy, crazy busy man. Well, that's okay. Now that you're, I got, I got my, my, uh, my flag up today. Nice. I love it. So Much one thing, one oh, thing I ahead. do have, a, I have a mild conflict. I have, uh, so at two o'clock, I have a four minute little spiel to go do. So okay. I didn't know if I can. So we're, we're in the middle of our um, diversity program and we're having a, a woman's group um, uh, join at two o'clock. And so my, my job is to, well, it was my idea. So this is, I'm going to give them the pitch of why we're doing this, how I need their feedback, and then I'll come back. Okay. That sounds good. I actually just disabled the waiting room so you can cruise out and then cruise back in and then they'll never know if, I mean, cause it's a podcast, they're just listening. So. And it's highly edited, right? You're going to cut out probably spots too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. So that, that works. Um, Shelby just sent me a team's message and she said, say hi to Steve for me and happy energy efficiency day. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> We're going to plug in these real quick. Um, how are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm okay. I'm tired. Um, I'm trying to knock out all the things that I committed to before I realized this baby was a thing. So, um, is it feeling more real? It, it is. Um, I've got three months left and I just hosted a huge international conference last week. I had five book chapters due that I just turned in the last one today. Um, trying to get the DOE grants ready to go before I roll out and then uh, just, you know, coordinating all the things. Is so. Shelby doing that all for you? <laughs> She's doing a lot, but I think I need another Shelby at this point. So. Well, that's yeah. cool. That's, uh, that's exciting. That's on all fronts with you, you know, the, yeah. the grants, the success, the, the writing, the teaching. So it's, it's a, oh, and the kid, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that too, that too. Yeah. It's all good though. How are you doing? Doing all right. I'm trying to figure out how to do my job, so it's kind of fun. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a, an exciting challenge. I really, I like it. I like the opportunity. Um, a little nerve wracking at times, but I, uh, yeah, I, I do enjoy it. Good, good, good. Well, um, I don't remember if I told you this last time, but since I'll be out for the MEP class, I just had a meeting with Jason and Shelby yesterday, and Shelby's going to take over leading, leading that um, and coordinating it. So. She'll, cool. she'll, she'll be your person for the PACAR tour and all that good stuff. So do you think that's going to be virtual again? Um, I, at this point, it's all in person. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that's, that's the plan. As long as you're vaccinated and wear a mask, you're allowed on campus, apparently. <laughs> I've got several different forms of proof of vaccination. I've got, you know, my card, I've got the clear, uh, whatever that clear app for the airport has a yep. vaccination deal. I've got... <laughs> I've got the my IR type of thing through the state. King County has a new one. Climate Pledge Arena has their own vaccine. So I'm, I think I'm gonna have like 19 different ways to show you that I'm vaccinated. Perfect. <laughs> Just like have a whole Rolodex of. <laughs> and I'll have a mask. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. But yeah, it, a... at this point we're we're good um, in person wise. So. Good. It's yeah. been really hard to find. I went to the I went to a Cougar game and I had my my in laws went down to a game too and we couldn't find any Cougar masks. So they they've really? been. They said, yeah, we got a, a box in this morning and they were gone in 20 minutes. So I don't know. Because the, all the kids are complying, right? They're all just so well behaved. Uh, sort of. It, sort it, of. It, it was a mess. The football game we went to, it was, it was a sunny, warm day. And it was just walking the streets with my two daughters, just 
debauchery. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds about right. Yeah. Hey, Howdy. Hey, Martin. Hey, there's hey. a face. <laughs> How's it going? Good. I had to get my Zoom account thing because I forgot about it, of course. So. <laughs> no worries. You're good. I'm actually going to X out on my email now. I was in there just in case you needed us, but that way it's not dinging every five minutes. Um, I'll get out of that real quick. You've got Mine's... a real microphone. Are you a DJ? Yeah. Well, it's, I'm, at, I'm at my brother's house. So I'm not I'm not in my normal office. Well, that's like very podcast place. official. I like your shirt. So, yeah. So I don't know <laughs> if it sounds any better where I'm at, but um, but it's basically the same microphone I have. I just don't have like the little arm and all the, then the this, like top part. Yeah, it sounds good. So mine, so mine looks like that. And usually I hide it. It's like usually from my computer. So no one even knows I even have it. I dig it. Well, this will turn into a podcast where we just have the audio. So it's nice to see your faces right now, but oh, phew. eventually you, we won't have the faces. So I did my yeah, hair and, and everything today. <laughs> <laughs> it looks awesome. Yeah. I, I didn't. Yeah, my hair, I can't do much with my hair. So that's good. Is what yeah. it, is. it was raining pretty good this morning. So I just ran out of the house and hope for the best. So yeah, cool. that worked. Well, thanks for joining. I'm super excited about this one. And Um, I think there's going to be a lot of good stuff to talk about. And I got all of your notes, Martin, just a little while ago. And so I added those um, to some of our other ideas. And I say we we just start talking about some of these that we already rattled on last time and then um, see where it goes. And uh, Steve mentioned he has to sneak out just for a few minutes at two and then pop back in. And so now that the waiting room is disabled, you should just be able to kind of go in and out however you need to. So that totally works. So cool. Any any questions before we get all official? Not can that I we have to crack, be that official. Can I still crack jokes and be sarcastic? <laughs> totally. I I want it to be fun. I don't want it to be okay. um, dry and have us you know go back and forth and and kind of talk through stuff. So we can just talk like we're at the Coog and having a beer. Okay. Over a glass of water. My dog is going to probably bark here in a few minutes. So I'll, uh... <laughs> You're good. That's actually why I came to the office instead of staying at home is because my dogs have been on a barking kick lately i should probably stop ordering stuff from amazon and then the ups person <laughs> would stop coming <laughs> but you can't do that you're gonna have a kid here next month you gotta order stuff to just fill your house with things that you don't I know. really need <laughs> there's so much stuff coming right now so yeah every day like between oh, one man. and three uh somebody's knocking on the door for delivery of things so yeah well, cool. Well, I think we'll probably just start out with uh, some brief introductions. And um, I have an official kind of intro that we're adding to the beginning of all of the podcasts. And so we'll we'll smash that together. And then I, I guess I'll just start with saying welcome. Thanks so much for joining today. I'm excited to talk about buildings and energy and and a little bit about both of your careers and, and what you've learned along the way. So I think to start, I just want to get a little background on who you are and what you do and how you got there. So maybe I'll start with you, Steve, if you want to introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, thanks, Julia. Uh, my name is Steve Brooks. Uh, I'm a president of UMC. Uh, I started here just 23 years ago, uh, came out of college as a mechanical engineer and sort of working in design projects, doing uh, biotech and healthcare mechanical design, which that means, you know, piping systems, ductwork systems, airflow systems, uh, and really 
started to really enjoy the technical side of the business of, of biotech and healthcare and, and learn how those buildings go together. And working for a design build firm, which UMC is, I got to see the, uh, the success and the challenges of a design where I would do a design and put it out to our field team and say, hey, here's what I came up with. And they go, well, that's, that's great, can't be built. Um, just because you can draw it doesn't mean it can be put together that way. So a really humbling experience early in my career to, to really work with the tradespeople and the craft folks who, who build the buildings and then um, uh, have that influence how we design buildings so that they're, they're, they're easier to build which generally means they're easier to maintain. And so um, keep it simple, stupid is a, is a model that's, that's worked pretty well, KISS, you know, um, so that it, it, if you, the simpler it can be, the, the more elegant it'll work and the more sustainable it can, it can last or be for those that have to operate it too. So design was my early career. Uh, and then um, I, I moved into project management and some estimating. Uh, and one of the really unique things about my career is I think I've been able to work in five or six different departments, very different parts of our business without ever leaving UMC. So I got a real diverse mix of, of project management, estimating, field operations, you know, modeling and 3D modeling for, for, our, for our fabrication, um, operation side, helping run a, a industrial shutdown of a, of a pulp and paper mill. Um, so I've been very fortunate to get a very diverse career without having to change um, email addresses, which I've had for 23 years now. So a uh, pretty unique opportunity that I've had to, to, to grow into the position I have now. And, and then a, this new position I've had for six months is a brand new opportunity and challenge for me to learn how to, how to do it successfully and, and support those that are relying on my uh, good decisions or not to screw it up, <laughs> one of the two. Awesome. Well, and Mr. President, uh, what does UMC stand for? Oh, tell me that. So <laughs> UMC uh, stands the University of Mechanical Contractors. So it was a company started on the Ave in Seattle near uh, other state university and, uh, and has been around since 1920. So uh, it's been a, been a, been a long standing company. It started off as just a plumbing and heating company. And now we're a very diverse Kind of energy management, uh, design, construction, operations, and uh, manufacturing, and I'll throw in technology there just because we're doing some experimental things to try and advance construction, advance construction technology so that it doesn't look like it used to 100 years ago. Very cool. Well, thanks for being here with us. Excited you could join. And we also have Martin here, and um, I'm curious about your story. How'd you get to where you are today? Yeah, so my story basically started uh, right out of high school. I uh, thought it was a great idea to go to the Navy. Uh, so went ahead and just did that kind of a, out of a whim because I didn't get into uh, WSU. I was actually looking to get into the forestry program. So I went into the Navy instead and then um, went into the Naval Nuclear uh, Propulsion Program. So uh, basically... Went through a year of schooling, learning all the fun stuff that uh, Steve did. He transferred fluid flow, physics, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then went up to a prototype in New York where we worked on an operational reactor. And then, um, and then I went to the USS Columbia and a submarine out of Pearl Harbor. And so I was there for over four years on the Columbia and um, got to travel the world and um really just learn a lot of technical skills, operational skills, um, just, you know, hands-on operating things, doing lots and lots of maintenance. 
And then when I was done with that, um, I got out of the Navy and then I went to go work for Tyco Valves and Controls, where uh, for, for them, we did a lot of um, valve work and testing. We did work up in the North Slope in Alaska, up in the oil field. So I've been to every drill site in the Kapark oil field up there and Alpine as well. And uh, some refineries and just a lot of industrial type um, work for about three years there. And then um, then I went to uh, the hospital world where I came in as a graveyard split shift building engineer. Didn't know a lot about buildings, but I kind of knew the, you know, reasonings behind of how things worked um, in buildings and then uh, grew um, in that field for a while. And then I became a facility manager, did that for about five years um, at a hospital and um, in Issaquah. And then from there, um, just for me, just I'm a lifelong learner and just want to learn more and do more things and had a lot of experience working with folks at UMC and just love kind of the culture and how they do business and um, just be able to help me grow more uh, technically and, and personally as well. Um, so I came in to help start up the billing performance services group, which I manage right now. And uh, so we do everything from building analytics, energy audits, city CL tune-ups. Uh, we do uh, facility training. We write manuals, plan operations manuals, just kind of uh, more of the operational side than, constru than uh, construction. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, my story in a nutshell. Uh, that's one reason I love having the chance to do this podcast right now is to hear hear your stories and how you started out in the Navy and kind of worked your way to where you are. Um, I think all those those experiences give us uh, all some great perspective in what we're doing now. And so that's super cool to hear. Your nutshell. There's more, but we can you know we can have, be <laughs> we can, yeah, we can have beers sometime and and talk through the more. <laughs> for it's sure. a big nutshell. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's just let's jump into some of these questions here. Um, part of this podcast is is really looking at um, energy and buildings and energy efficiency and those different design and operation moves that we make um, to do that. And I know UMC's done quite a lot of work in that energy efficiency world. So I'm just curious if you have a couple of examples of, um, I guess, first of all, how energy efficiency relates to what you do. And then maybe we can jump into a couple of good examples of projects that you've done. Okay, I might jump in there real quick. And so one of the reasons, what the exciting thing about what Martin brings is that, you know, as a design and construction firm, we, we design it and we build it. And nine times out of 10, how the building is used is very different than how it was designed. Uh, maybe eight out of 10, Martin, you can tell me better, but oftentimes it's just op operated and, and, and occupied differently. And Martin knows what that's like. And people who operate buildings know uh, the best intentions were there during design, but just the needs of the facility needs of the, of the occupants changes. And so if we can have Martin and his team's perspective on how we design buildings, how we can make them a little more flexible, um, operators of buildings are generally faced with a building, obviously, that we turn over to them, but also their utility bills month after month after month. 
And if we can find ways to deliver these buildings day one to the customer that allow the flexibility for them to shift a bit, use them differently, because we don't want to hold them to how they designed it because their business has changed. But if we find ways to, to provide a, a more flexible product to them, then they can have the, the, the freedoms to change and tweak and, and operate that building in a way that truly is optimized for how they need to use it. And that saves energy, that saves money every month. And that's one of the exciting things is we have this feedback loop now of someone who's really operated a building, a very efficient building, one of the most efficient hospitals in the country to get us smarter, teach us how we need to look at design differently and how we need to install things differently so they can be more user-friendly and optimize the energy consumption. Cause that's, you know, one of the things that we are as mechanical constructors and builders is stewards of our customers' future money, not just what they pay us to build, but we're stewards of what they have to spend in the future uh, for utility bills. And we want to be mindful of that. So no little, little soapbox there, but no, it's, it's a good soapbox because it relates directly to what we want to talk about. And one of the up and coming issues, I think, in the industry is, is having that flexibility, adaptability and, and resilience for buildings. So um, I'm excited to hear more about some examples of that. Oh, is that me? I don't know. <laughs> if you want it to be, go for uh, it. <laughs> yeah. So kind of um, you're, when you look at it on the operational side, so the building gets built, generally, you know, the people that are going to be operating the building, they're generally not there during construction for the most part. They kind of come in either at the very end or maybe they don't even exist uh, when the building gets turned over for whatever reason, whether it's leasing agreements or, you know, who, who knows for a variety of reasons. And so what happens that um, I think is really important is communicating that design intent to the operators of the building, the facility managers, the building engineers or building automation engineers, whoever is actually using the building. Um, and that was one thing that I thought that we did pretty well was uh, at the, the hospital that I mentioned was that we were in there a little bit earlier than normal. So we got to see the final end of construction. We had uh, an in-house PE and CEM who's is a WSU alum. And so, um, so we were able to kind of understand better of what the building intent was like, what, what were, what was happening during those construction meetings. And it was all about energy. It was, everything went through an energy lens, like every decision you make and set point you change and everything was about energy. And that was kind of instilling a energy culture that, um, you know, was able to permeate through the entire department. Um, so that was kind of something, I guess, unique, but you know, I think that we need more of that kind of going forward long-term and um, really being able to maximize that. So you really understand what you're trying to do. So Martin, how did, how did that energy lens get created? Like why don't all projects have an energy lens? Uh, well, it pretty much came from the top of the, you know, the, the organization the on the owner side that it was, you know, they, they wanted to, they designed to 150 EUI, EUI of 150. And so to get there, cause no one had done it in the Pacific Northwest, 
And so they wanted to get there. So all of the selection of equipment and how everything was done, obviously uh, heat recovery was a very backbone of making it happen. Um, but all those meetings, uh, how you do, how you did everything, energy was part of those conversations. It wasn't a matter of looking at, you know, an RFIs and all the other construction kind of details that you kind of get bogged down with. It's, it's having this vision that is always at the center. And I think that the organization did really good at having energy be at the very center of what you did. Right. So it's basically, you know, it's like having a mission, right? Mission, vision, values kind of thing. And having that be the, the center point, um, help figure out what decisions needed to be made from there. Do you think, um, well, you mentioned before that this is one of the most energy efficient buildings that you've worked on um, and even in the region, what kinds of design or operation innovations had to be implemented, implemented to make that happen? Uh, I would say kind of at the root is that every BTU matters. That's really what it, what it came down to was we're not going to give them more than they need and we're not going to give them less than they need. So whatever it is that they need, that's what we're going to give them. Um, so example is humidity resets in, in surgery rooms. So the system doesn't do anything until you get to 58% humidity when you're trying to control to, uh, you know, six, 60, if you're doing dehumidification. So we're not going to do anything. Um, so it's very aggressive, um, a lot of timers. And so you're really slowing everything down, which drives building operators mad because they want everything to happen really quick. But it's like, you know, you, you, you look at something, you come back 30 minutes later and see what happens. That, that kind of slowness on how everything moved. Um, so the, just the notion of like everything matters, no matter how small it is. Um, I think that's kind of the, I guess, the win out of, out of that. Yeah. And, and, and that example too, though, nothing, all the equipment and all the technology put in that building wasn't bleeding edge or even cutting edge. It was just smarter use of existing um, uh, equipment. It was just right sizing it. It was, you know, spending a little bit more time to make sure it's the right application, sizing things more deliberately and implementing, implementing existing technology in just a little smarter, thoughtful way. So there's no oversizing, there's no just safety factors in there unless there's a valid reason for it. So then when the facility folks walk in to operate it, there's nothing foreign to them. There's nothing strange they have to relearn their, their you know, how our chiller works. It's a standard chiller, it's a high efficiency chiller. We have a heat recovery chiller. We have other components that all look familiar, but they're just put in together in a little smarter way. Yeah, and I also think kind of the quality of work as well, because you got to remember that, and, you know, we don't need to stay on this particular building, but for too long, but just also when it was built as well, because a lot of the, the construction industry, it was a down, down time for them. So you had the best of the best of every trade, whether you're a carpenter, painter, mechanical, uh, engineer, um, sheet metal worker, electrician. Um, you really kind of had the best of the best that were on that project. Um, so I think that's kind of something that often gets overlooked as well of, of who is actually installing it and what, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to 
make a buck or are they actually trying to invest into something to make it special? And it doesn't have to be a hospital. It can be a lab. It could be even an office building. It's about having that pride of ownership and pride of building and, and doing the best you can, of course, with, with the resources you do have. Yeah. And I would imagine what plays into that too, is like, do they share that vision? Like one of my questions earlier was going to be, how is working on a team for a really energy efficient building different than maybe like a typical building? Um, And I think that's, that's one thing, what you just addressed is you had the best of the best, but are, are there other ways in which um, also aside from communicating the design intent to the operator, are, are there other things that you all did um, that were maybe different in this team than other teams you've been on? Yeah, I would say probably one thing is that we, we did a lot of training. Uh, we did training every other week. Um, so it, it was kind of different and we really ground it in to the mines, right? So it really got to a point where some of the building operators, and I know some people won't like me saying this, but, you know, we kind of almost scared them into not going and doing the, the operator override thing, which, which happens a lot in buildings. And we actually had early on where, where one individual, he went overrode a point. You wouldn't even think that even mattered at all. Um, but it actually crashed the whole plant. The, so all the heating, cooling, like it all just stopped working from one override. Um, and so at that time, we kind of had this fear of, okay, well, you don't want to touch it unless you really understand what you're doing. Um, because those, those little points that you normally wouldn't use in code were scattered throughout the code in the building automation system. So it was, um, so that really helped kind of limit the normal thing that happens in most buildings, which is people just make things go away, not understanding what they're doing, or maybe something's broken, a damper or a sensor or something. Right. Um, and instead of going and actually fixing that, you, you know, you're fixing the symptoms, not actually what the problem is. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm curious too, and this might take us down a rabbit hole, but that's okay. It's, it's a good one to go down. <laughs> On the design side, Steve, you mentioned that there was nothing like cutting edge that happened. Um, whether we're talk- talking about this project or maybe another one in terms of the system selected, um, a debate that I've heard a lot of back and forth is kind of this um, tension between the building operators or facility managers and the occupants who use that building. And so I kind of want to dive into um, that potential conflict and think about um, were there specific design aspects that were implemented in this project or any project to help kind of alleviate that tension um, or give occupants more control or not? I'm just, I kind of want to dive into that because I'm excited about it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I think Martin probably has more examples of this than, than most. But what I've seen successful at, you know, I, I do a lot of work at Fred Hutch and have been there my whole career. And they have, a, a, for a lab building, some of the best energy performance metrics in the area. Still lots of room for improvement, but, uh, but they've got it to that point because they educate all the occupants on how their behavior affects the energy consumed in the building. So every, um, every fume hood in that building has a little sticker on it that says, if you leave this sash up in a full position, you're gonna spend an extra $30,000 uh, a year in energy. 
So if you keep your sash closed, you can be part of the team that saves money and puts that money back into cancer research. So it gets there by if the, the occupants understanding how their behavior affects the, um, the performance of the system, their energy bills and the whole financial health of the institution drives off of some of their behavior. And that, that the sash is one thing. It's also that the temperature fluctuations in the lab. So labs have higher change rates and that's all for good reason to keep the space um, uh, purged from contaminants. But temperature is really just driven off of human comfort. So they also encourage you, hey, if it's a cold day outside, wear a sweater. If it's hot outside, hey, maybe wear a t-shirt. So you, because we're gonna allow the temperature swings to be a little bit wider because we can save you know, X number of dollars. And they tell the, everybody, we're gonna save this much money if you buy into this kind of, this, uh, this, this community aspect of how you might operate your buildings. So people do, they go, gosh, I could save the, comp the, the, the institution money, which goes back into research. And part of their mission is that sustainability and you can be a part of it. They invite people into those conversations versus say, lots of operational, lots of engineering facilities team thing. And I don't know what they're doing and I'm uncomfortable all the time, but they don't know the why. So I, I think a big piece of that is, is that linking the, the why the facility runs that way with the end users and understanding how that, that healthy tension is, is a good thing to have because at some point the occupants who are doing the research are gonna break and go, hey, no, this is critical to my operation. Here's what parameters are. And then facilities oftentimes says, Absolutely, we can find a way to make that happen. And that's where it becomes fun to then be a problem solver on just that specific application because um, then that's the one-off versus the whole organization is <laughs> against you. You just said something that I think a lot of people don't get that I've learned over the years is the why. Um, whether you're talking about occupants in buildings or uh, students in the classroom, if they don't understand why they're learning that thing then it typically just goes over the head and they, they don't care. So I, I think that's a critical piece of actually getting those occupants to engage. So that's awesome. And then Martin, I'm, I'm curious if you have stories about that occupant operator relationship and I don't know, maybe, maybe some good ones and maybe some funny ones or horror stories. Maybe be fun to hear. <laughs> yeah. So I've, you know, I was a building engineer myself. And um, so, you know, you get the hot and cold calls and, you know, all the other things that happen right in buildings. And so, um, you know, when you're working on some older building that, you know, doesn't perform that well to begin with, um, you know, you go in and you're really nice about it and you go look at the thermostat everything's working fine and you know you you say yep i made an adjustment and which you did do um and then they're happy and they're thrilled because somebody actually came up and i think um you know took the time in order to address their need right even though you didn't change anything to begin with or, or in the end either um you actually were there and and were trying to do something, even though, um, we had a lot of rooms where I, I first worked at that they, um, you know, they, they didn't have the performance, right. There's, there's only so much you can do. And so that would happen a lot. And then a lot of times also, when you give people control of their thermostat, you just give them a range, right. That they can adjust it and just having them have the ability to change the temperature even if they can't even go as high or as low as they really want. Um, a lot of people, they find comfort in that, that they have some control 
So it's back to, I guess, that human thing about us where we want control of our environment. <laughs> um, and so I'd, I would see a lot of that as well, um, where you could be in the exact same room and they not have control and then they will, they'll be unhappy. Right. But if they have control and they're in the same, you know, same temperature, humidity, then they're happy. So it's kind of, you know, just a human thing, I guess. Um, I'm sure there's probably other ones, but that's kind of what comes to the top of my head. Yeah. I've, uh, I've seen that over and over that people want the control, even if it's a dummy control and they think they have control, then there's this psychological thing that happens, um, for sure. So, okay. I'm going to shift gears a little bit here and see, um, I'm curious about maybe crazy stories you have from the field or, uh, things that you've seen that, I don't know, made you say what, <laughs> what happened hey, here? <laughs> tell them the bailing wire story. Well, that sounds fun already. Which one? <laughs> Wait, didn't you have like uh, a, a valve being held open by a two by four and some bailing wire? Um, two by four and bailing wire. I'm trying to think of that one. <laughs> you're doing your, your energy audit of a, uh, uh, over on Dexter. Uh, didn't you find a, a, a valve wired some, some in, in a position? So it, it could, it was an override clearly, but it was just. Yeah. Um, um, yes, I've had, I'm, I'm trying to think of which one that is. There's, there's so many different bailing wires one. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've seen though. a lot of uh, C clamps. We're at this, we're doing energy audit at a uh, hotel and the actuator is just kind of just laying right there. And then the, um, they have actually a C clamp on the valve to uh, make sure that they have hundred uh, percent chill water flow through there. Um, there's definitely some dampers that we've seen with uh, bailing wire kind of held open. Things are just kind of laying around. Um, I've, I've seen two by fours in um, uh, keeping fire smoke dampers open. Uh, that, that's always kind of a fun one. It's like, well, I guess it'll work eventually when the wood burns out of the duct. <laughs> that, that's, that's a pretty interesting one. Um, so whenever, whenever I hear somebody putting a two by four in, in fire, uh, smoke damper, um, to keep them open, I'm just like, oh my goodness, somebody's going to forget to take that thing out. Yeah, we did have a, um, uh, it was, it was a kind of a turn of the century, probably like 1910 building in Seattle, uh, somewhere in that time frame. really, really old. And they had this lever that was pneumatically um, positioned. It's like having, uh, and it had a bunch of um, like springs on it, all these different things. And it was connected. And this lever was actually connected to a electrical disconnect, which was drilled through. And basically what they did was that they would, um, actuate this actuator, which in turn would turn on this highly illegal um, electrical disconnect to turn on this motor, which was pretty impressive because it's, you know, I've never seen a motor like this before. It's like the oldest thing ever. Um, and that one, I'll, I'll have to send you pictures of that one, Julia, because that one's pretty interesting as well. Um, but yeah, there's, 
lots and lots of things that we see. I, I would say probably some of the the craziest one of the craziest ones was I think earlier this year where we had a package rooftop unit that had so much ice on the coil that actually on the outside of the unit was icing up. And so that was that one was pretty impressive. And then there's always the, you know, lots of filters caved in and coil so dirty, you can't see them. You know, they're really furry and, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I haven't heard furry and filter together. Furry. That's and, awesome. Actually, <laughs> I was at this one. Uh, I, was, I was at this, uh, well, it happened to be a, a hospital, unfortunately. And I, was, and I was looking at the cooling towers and the... Um, they had so much growth on there. They had like the little, um, I call it a pocket pet. It's like a, a, like a little chia pet. Um, because you had like this, this green moss that was growing on it. And there's so much of it. I just took a clump off. I actually put it in my pocket and I went and showed the facility manager. I was like, Hey, uh, look at this. I got a pocket pet, <laughs> like my own little chia pet. Uh, I was like, you need to go clean the tower. Uh, yeah, it sounds so. like it. Oh, that's rad. Um, I've seen a lot of occupants do creative things too, for, um, just blocking vents and putting popsicles on thermostats and, you know, they can get a little tricky sometimes. So that actually leads me to my next line of questioning here. I'm, we've talked before a little bit about how there's a lot of buildings are, that are moving towards this very, um, I would say technology driven and very automated in a lot of ways. And I see another movement sort of going back to basics and passive, you know, operable windows and daylighting and shades and um, different control points or interfaces in the building where people are supposed to interact with them and they have full control. So there's sort of the two ends of the spectrum, like very human driven and very technology driven. And there's um, a lot of in-betweens there where those sort of meet up and I'm just I'm curious if you have any stories or like lessons learned um, for either end of that spectrum or maybe the balance that you've found in that complexity through a couple of examples of buildings it's a big question but you know we've got time well Steve's on <laughs> mute so I'll go ahead and go <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so kind of one thing that I see with just as buildings become more complex is, um, and I don't know if you're getting into this in the sensor thing later or not, but, um, just the use of sensors kind of everywhere. So you have these sensors that are being used to control things. And so what happens is when something happens to them, they, they're not calibrated, they get water on them, which, which we've seen recently as well. Uh, what happens with these critical sensors is that you, the things just stop working right, and it and it becomes really um, a problem. Where typically a lot of people they don't know how to troubleshoot it because they don't know what is actually going on. There's just some sensor that's stashed, you know, in some ceiling somewhere that they don't know even exists. Um, maybe it's not even on the controls, graphics, or anything um, that is doing this work and all this math or whatever. And it, it comes to a point where we're just making kind of things just so complex and have so many sensors that we kind of, as an industry, we need to kind of be paying more attention 
to those things of when is too much and how do you maintain this stuff going long-term and the kind of the, the saying that we had was death by sensor. And we've just seen it so many times where things just go bad and, um, and it takes a lot of time and you got to get really an expert in there to look at things, a, you know, an in, in, uh, introductory level or like apprentice level, kind of somebody newer to the industry that, um, you know, might not even know where to even look. And so that's kind of the, the thing is we we're getting really complex. Yeah. Well, Mark, when you're saying death by sensor, do you, does that mean we're, you're dependent or, or, or we're getting too many sensors in the system to be able to monitor or that we have too much dependency on just one sensor that can, you know, when it, if it fails, the system goes into chaos. Or both? Kind of, kind of both. Um, so one thing with, uh, we've seen like the Onicon flow sensors, they have these little turbines in them uh, for water flow. And you have, uh, if you have two, you know, the model that has like two of them in there and then one, one breaks or stops working, then you're, you're at half flow, right? So then your chillers and your whole chill water plant or heating water plant thinks that you have this much and then you're starving the system um we've seen that we've seen um a chill water sensor recently where it got a bunch of water on it and they didn't even know the sensor even existed and so it stopped their whole plant they couldn't and this was during the heat wave and they they couldn't even cool their building at all um, because they didn't have chill water going where it was supposed to be going and pumps operating how they're supposed to be operating. Um, so just, and there's ways to program around that and, and different things, but, um, you know, getting, getting those BTUs and getting those EUIs that you want to have and the energy savings, it comes with a cost. And so sometimes it's about saving energy, not necessarily about saving money, which yeah. uh, a lot of people don't want to hear that as well. But um, you have more maintenance that you have to do on these complex systems, and especially yeah. the sensors. We've really been pushing the sensors and doing regular calibrations on these things. Um, the critical ones do every year, uh, maybe a little less critical do every couple years. Um, because it's, it's, we just see it all over the place these days and nobody has those in their, their maintenance agreements, or, you know, if they're doing maintenance internally, it's just not on their radar at all. Yeah. I kind of want to make a t-shirt now that says death by sensor. (laughs) (laughs) We actually got to make some, uh, shirts that says, uh, every BTU matters on our, our billing performance (laughs) services, uh, shirts. Yeah, and, and what part of that is, you know, some of the IoT um, world that's happening is is it's driving down the cost of sensors, which is mm-hmm. a good thing that you can maybe afford to put a few in there. Um, but at, at some point, some of that sometimes you can use those to also triangulate the problem. So you you can calculate the answer a couple different ways, and then you look and see the variances. So um, some of these smart buildings we're working on that Martin's helping with, and you know, SLI is an example. We're making modular high-rise affordable housing um, but with smart technology that allows us to know you know you know first stage of cooling is to close the blinds so before you even engage your cooling system you're closing your windows you're closing your blinds Uh, and you can do that with multiple sensors to try and you know average and get some different data feedback points so that you can make 
just like humans, make an informed decision with multiple different data points to say, what should I do given these different parameters versus this one point has no flow, therefore I'll react here, a very binary reaction. So a lot of that IoT allows us a whole bunch of data that can be overwhelming for sure. But if we can, if we can set up smartly, you can hopefully get to a better decision point given the mass of data that we can see. Do you find when you use more sensors in a building or have a highly like evolved or smart building that um, the occupants in that building can forget that they're also inherently sensors and that they end up just not touching anything, which might be the point. But I guess I'm just curious still about that, the complexity versus simplicity and how, how that impacts how people interact with the building. Well, I think the more complicated the building, I think the obligation should be to more inform the occupants. So the more passive it is, the more passive the report out can be. Uh, I think that they'll, in the passive buildings, like, you know, Weber Thompson downtown has a, has a, oh, I guess Weber Thompson, I think it is, has a, a passive building. So they, if they're hot, they open up a window. So it's very much a behavior, they have to physically do something uh, out of the response there versus if everything's automated, you don't quite know what you need to do, but you have to inform them what the building is doing so they can then correlate their behavior to the reaction. I think you have to, the more disconnected they are, the more communications required. So um, I don't think we've got there yet. I mean, we had a meeting with PSE this week talking about how, you know, grid connected buildings is a great idea, but the grid's not ready for it. Buildings can't do it. So we're still talking in theoretical and Julie, some of your research is, is, is based on this, right? Is occupant interaction and that kind of stuff. And yep. you know, at the at the bigger scale of grid and buildings, you know, we're we're still a ways off from when that can really be practically applied. So um, it's still early, and there isn't a whole lot of prime examples yet to so, to show how well it's working or how well it isn't working. I think the the passive buildings are ahead because there's a lot more buildings out there that are passive and they don't have the technology, and you can understand yeah. how that humans interact with the buildings much better than technology is still pretty, in my mind, I have not seen a lot of it widespread adopted, has not been adopted widespread that it would give you, to me, an understanding of what, what the, the optimal level of communication should be. Yeah. And I think you hit it though, that there's, you mentioned again, there's the why piece and communication is critical. And then I think you're right that depending on the level of complexity, there's different types of communication and different um, expectations from not only does the design team, but the operators and the occupants. Um, and it's, it's complicated. If you but, can, if you can yeah. gamify it, then you'll have better success. I mean, that's the, the people have <laughs> talked about that. And yep. some of our clients, they'll, they'll compete floors against each other. Like, so the you know, fourth floor energy consumption this, this month is going to, is 10% less than the seventh floor. And they get a, you know, I also a roller derby party, but I'm not, I'm not sure that's a thing. <laughs> Um, it could, it could a, be, it could be. They get a, well, I don't know, whatever event sponsored or some sort of competition to gamify it so that there's, there's, there's motivation, there's, there's um, some competition there to, to try and do, do good for the right reasons. Yeah, we're actually talking about um, putting together a competition for the residence halls here to have them compete for energy savings. And we're trying to figure out how to best do that since the floors aren't submetered and some of the buildings aren't even metered. So we're trying to figure out how to uh, logistically calculate all of that. But yeah, definitely competition and gamification are good ways to kind of spark that behavior change for sure. 
Gosh, you um, could probably have their, somebody could link up, everyone's got a phone though. So how do yeah. you do data collection through their phone to try and know? I don't know, that'd be good. Yeah, there's yeah. some, uh, I think down in, uh, it's one of the big uh, colleges down in California, I think, um, maybe San Francisco area or something. They do, um, we had a company that was just trying to present, you know, sell us something basically. And um, so then they, you know, all the occupants can basically go in and, and tell them, you know, too hot, too cold, this, that, or whatever. And then they have like this dashboard where they can kind of like look at everything and um, kind of be able to respond, you know, with more kind of data. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what it, it's been a few years um, since I seen that. So I'm probably not even saying it right. <laughs> well, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've heard of... very different for all I, for all I remember. Um, yeah. I've heard of one called the um, comfy app um, where you can kind of vote on, and it's based on, I think one of the ASHRAE comfort level scales, like too hot, too cold and everywhere in between. And then it sort of goes into a big old, data mixing pot and then changes the set points accordingly. So, yeah, um, we've seen, um, also, um, some, uh, I think of this one office building in particular in Seattle where they had a, a really good tenant handbook. And I thought that was pretty cool for that. You know, it, it works for them. It's not gonna work for everybody, obviously, but they had, um, you know, really good, thoughtful tenant handbook. Who do you call for this? How do you use elevators? How do you turn on the lights in your area? Um, you know, what to do when a fire happens, like kind of everything in one spot. And I thought that they did a really good job on it, but it's also, you know, kind of tag on with what Steve was saying, um, you know, in, in building like that culture and understanding and knowing what to do, you know, having something like a, a tenant handbook, which, um, I think for the most part is being required in the clean building standard. Um, you have to be able to tell people how to operate the building efficiently. Right. Um, I think something like that is um, going to be very beneficial. And I don't think kind of buildings as a whole do a very good job of, of kind of documenting that. So if someone really wants to know that they could go and, and look at it. Um, so it, I think in the end, it's about the retaining the institutional knowledge and whether it's the tenants or the people that maintain and operate the building. I think that's something that we have to do better kind of long-term is keeping that kind of knowledge in the building and not yeah. just, you know, go when people go. And yeah, document the why, right? Yep. Yeah, and docu- yeah, and exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's a lot of what you've been doing with your training lately, right? Just going in and making sure that that knowledge isn't lost in between operators. Yeah. So yeah, you know, my last job, we, I, I built um, like a, um, I call it the plant operations manual, but basically a building operations manual and just kind of everything from what do you do when you have loss of power to kind of descriptions on, you know, what air handlers or what zones and, um, just so you can ha- kind of have a one-stop shop is back to my Navy days. You know, we got the operating instructions and, you know, you got the emergency operating instructions, all, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and so I, you know, just using some of those skills I gained in the Navy and um, kind of putting that into the world that I was in and it was very helpful and it helps you be able to onboard people 
easier as well when you have actual videos of people talking about what is going on, you know, what this piece of equipment is, where you can have somebody watch these videos and they can get to, you know, maybe like 60%, right? Or 70%. And then you're not having to use a, a warm body or your expert to tell them everything. Um, so you can use them for that and, and it retains that knowledge in the organization. So like when I left or whatnot, like all that still exists there. Um, and so I think that's really important that, you know, we do kind of a better job at that just as a whole. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so I've, I've taken us down the occupant operator path and also sensors, but I want to give you both a chance to talk about um, anything that might not be related to those two topics that we already talked about. So just, I'm curious along the way, and it can have to do with comfort, um, energy or something totally different, but things that you wish you had known (laughs) or lessons learned along the way. If you have any stories that, that you want to share that might help future designers, operators, students, um, love to hear it. And we can probably wrap after that. Well, I guess one one thing that I wish, I mean, I took a lot of engineering classes in college and um, a piece that I wish I would have known earlier in my career, actually two pieces. One is the, the finance side of it as the, you know, the cost of our designs and kind of that, not just the first cost, but the ongoing cost. We kind of mentioned it before of the, you know, we leave a customer with a building and a bill for every month that they operate the building. And understanding that it's how the decisions we make on the design side affect their utility bills and, and finding ways to, to um, build buildings more sustainably that are financially viable. And I, 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 I wish I would, was more creative in my younger days of how to design buildings such that we could justify the right thing to do financially uh, versus some of the, the, you know, the, the energy codes are, are kind of force your hand into doing some 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 good efficient things and it's it's really it's more fun to find ways to to save the energy in a cost-effective way to say if i do this in my design i can save this much money and i've got a five-year payback on it i mean the, the, the financial benefit of doing this is real and it's the good that's the right thing to do so having to solve problems where you have to solve both of those pieces is i think really exciting and, and the piece that would have if I learned the finance side of my earlier in my career and the communication skills to be able to pitch those solutions to show the real benefits. Um, again, I was a very kind of introspective, you know, engineer mindset and the communications piece and just how well you need to, to, to be able to tell a story are two pieces that I, I wish I would have learned with when there was a two or three in front of my age versus uh, <laughs> some other number. So Financing communications are the two things. Good. Thank you. What about you, Martin? Yeah, I would, um, you know, even though it's kind of back to the the complexity is, you know, you shouldn't necessarily design it or do it. Um, How, yeah, so I guess I'll back up. So going back to, to the complexity is just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should do it kind of thing, right? Because if you make things so complicated that no one's going to be able to understand if you weren't there or um, if it takes you days or weeks or whatever to figure something out, um, you know, it's probably not a good thing to do. 
Um, so I think just we as humans, we just are over complex. Uh, we, we make things, you know, we just add, I guess it's a matter of adding lots of layers, right? It's not that it, the one thing is really complex. It's when you add all these layers together, it's like an onion, right? Start laying all these layers upon layers upon layers. That's when it really gets complex, right? And then it makes it really hard to figure out. So I would, I'd say just because we can, it doesn't mean that we should make um, things more complex. And that's kind of just something that, and, and maybe you pay an energy penalty for that. And because, you know, we kind of had, you know, the, the model on every BTU counts and uh, every BTU matters or however you want to say it. But it's, um, you know, I've kind of changed my mind over time where it's like, well, you know, sometimes it's just not worth doing that because you're not setting people up for success in the future. And I think the other thing that I wish I knew was that there's, there's lots and lots and lots of resources out there. There's um, like the smart building center. <clears throat> they have a lot of resources that I didn't even know even existed. So I always promote them pretty much every time I talk on webinars or anything, I'm putting a plug in again for them. <laughs> um, but you know, there's like you know, Northwest energy efficiency council and, and all these different organizations that the industry, um, pays into there's, uh, I know the WSU energy program, you got a lot of great resources on your website as well. Mm -hmm. Um, there's just so many different places that you can look to find information. Uh, like for us, you know, we have, um, suppliers that do training for us internally. I mean, the, I think that the opportunities are, are way more than what we probably think. And, um, you know, I, and there's a ton that I still don't know about that are out there that are probably really cool. Um, you know, another one like uh, Association of Energy Engineers, that's mm -hmm. another great resource and great group of folks um, really thinking things in an energy perspective. And so uh, I, I wish I would have known about a lot of these resources, um, you know, years and years ago, especially as a facility manager, I, I wish I would have known about a lot of these things because, um, you know, I probably would have done some things differently. And, um, but, you know, things, things work out the way they're supposed to, I guess. <laughs> That's true. Lots of things to learn along the way. So I would say too, I'm curious if you have um, any building specific examples of, um, so that's, that's some big picture stuff you wish that you had known, but are there any, um, in terms of operation, energy efficiency, however you'd like to frame it, um, specific examples or lessons learned you've seen in buildings? Yeah, I would say, um, there's definitely, it definitely matters on the people, right? So a lot of people say that a lot. It's about the, about the, the people, not the company or whatnot. And I think that really, um, says, says a lot, right? So trying to surround yourself with, um, people that are going to, you know, they're going to lift you up and, and raise you up. And just for all of us, I think it's really important to kind of be in that sort of environment and try to work with people like that. Um, so we're not just, kind of just doing things just because, right? Or maybe we don't even know that reason of why we're doing something. Um, so you can kind of have that education piece of why 
why you are doing what you're doing. And we've ran across uh, a lot of folks out there that are operating buildings or they're on the construction side and they don't know why they're doing things. And you can kind of explain it to them. Well, this is kind of why we do this. And, and so now they're more passionate about it. And I had um, one chief building engineer downtown. We were doing some energy audits for them. And, you know, we kind of come in, we had all these different things to look at and we present in front of him and his boss, who is the property manager. And we're like, you know, this is kind of going on. This is what we see. And he's very defensive. Like we just like ran the bus across him kind of thing. Yeah. And so it felt really, really bad. Uh, it was obviously not our intent. We're just kind of showing what we had found in his buildings. And so it was kind of more of a, a different approach where you know, it's like, no, we're looking at things in an energy perspective and operations and energy don't always align. So, you know, this is kind of a conversation, right? It's not a, a commandment or a thou shalt of any sort <laughs> and kind of having those um, conversations about, okay, well, this is, this is why, you know, we're seeing these things regarding energy, energy perspective, all that stuff that I just said. And then, you know, then he starts kind of catching on. This happens over probably six, eight months. And by the time we were done with the energy audit and they fixed all this stuff, or whatever, he's emailing me saying, hey, you know, we just, you know, we did this whole uh, LED retrofit on this whole floor in our office. And like, he's all big in energy now. And, you know, <laughs> six, nine months ago, whatever it was, like, he, you know, we're sitting in there and, you know, he probably wants to take me out back and <laughs> end me. <laughs> Kind of thing, you know, and it, and it wasn't intentional or nothing, but, um, but it was kind of that, just that switch that kind of went off in his head. And he's like, no, this, and then he equated that to building performance, which a lot of people don't. So if you're, if your building's performing well, how it should be, things are operating, how they should be, you're going to be saving money. You're going to have better occupant comfort. Um, you're not going to get called as much, especially in the middle of the night or anything. Um, so I, I guess those are just kind of things that I've learned through trial. And, and, and like I mentioned before is um, it's not that anybody did anything wrong or, you know, sometimes the designs are bad, <laughs> but, you know, it's a matter of just remembering that, you know, people are involved and you have this, this whole thing that um, we're thinking of things in energy perspective nowadays, when before it wasn't, when this building was built in 1910, energy was not even thought about it. Maybe even like 25 years ago, energy wasn't a big thing um, as it kind of is now. And yeah. we just kind of all got to remember that and, and be nice to each other. <laughs> I like that. Being nice to each other should just go all, all around, <laughs> all around. Yes. You, know, you brought you brought up a couple of points that actually made me think of something else. Um, we've talked a lot about energy and energy efficiency, obviously, because that was, you know, a main focus of what you all do and um, what our goal was in terms of this podcast. But comfort, I've noticed just through the research that I've done, occupant comfort oftentimes comes into conflict with energy. Um, we've all heard about like thermal comfort wars and, you know, these battles sometimes between operators or facility managers and occupants. And I remember when we talked um, a month or two ago, you had a couple of really great examples about that comfort and energy balance. Um, you mentioned something about a heat sink and a surgeon. 
And I was wondering if you could uh, repeat that for everybody to hear other than just myself. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'll say it, uh, unnamed, uh, hospital. Um, yeah. so there was this, uh, surgeon that, um, liked the room really, really cold and, mm-hmm. uh, everybody in the room. So the rest of the, the operating room staff, they, they were not happy, right. Cause they're basically kind of in an, in an ice box. And, um, but this guy for, you know, some reasons I'm not going to say, like he <laughs> liked it really cold. And so he, um, so, so what happened is that he would, you know, he basically wants to operate the, it's like 63 or so. I mean, it's just like ridiculously cold in the room and then you're just sucking all the heat from all around there. Right. So talk about inefficient, um, cause the room is a heat sink, but what also happens is then when that room temperature is so low, you got to control humidity as well. So then you have to do more dehumidification than what you would have to do. And so what happens in the air handlers is they just start raining. So I've seen air handlers rain inside and it's not good. So bad things happen. Filters get wet. Uh, you start growing mold in there. Then you get pocket pets. Yeah, you get pocket pets. <laughs> You get, yeah, you get, you get furry friends, uh, throughout, you know, in areas you wouldn't want them and, you know, it, it could cause a lot of damage and it's not, you know, we're not picking on one hospital or another. It's, it's happened, happens in lots of places, not just hospitals or office buildings or whatnot. Um, but it's, it, but it's that whole notion of, okay, you, you're so worried about yourself, of your own comfort that you start having all these unattended consequences that you would even dream of, especially as a surgeon where you, you have no idea how the room gets cold. Um, but it happens and you have this whole ripple effect and then, and then you're fighting battles, you know, at the administrative level saying we can't do this. And, and then, you know, they're like, but he makes us a lot of money and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and yeah, it becomes a battle and it's just not very fun for anybody. Um, but you know, there's alternatives, there's, you know, jackets that you can wear, there's all these different things. Um, but we, as creatures of comfort, like our comfort and, um, and yeah, it just, it, it's just that whole notion of unintended consequences. You make decisions on everything we do every day and there's always an unintended consequence to everything. Yep. And it's sometimes you just don't know what it is. Um, so it's just kind of things that we got to be mindful of. Yeah, um, I, I totally agree with you that that term unintended consequences has come up a lot for me lately in some of the research that I've done and just talking to people and hearing their stories, just like we're doing right now. And in realizing that somebody may have had the best of intentions and then totally screwed something else up, um, just didn't even think about it. Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't know how much research you've done into that, but then you start getting into problem proliferation where then mm-hmm. you start going down a cycle or two of, okay, you had, you know, you, you fix this problem, right. The typical fix that fails kind of thing. And then you have these unintended consequences and then you try to fix those and then you have unintended consequences off those. And <laughs> so that's a whole problem proliferation thing where, you know, you, you now have more problems than what you wound up with because of what you had done. Yeah. Right. So it's really just trying to be mindful in how we approach things. And, um, 
And like you said, like when you're troubleshooting things, try to go to the root cause, not just override something. And, you know, that's just kind of something that happens in the industry that we got to eventually kind of resolve somehow. Yeah. I think that's a really good point too, is, um, yeah, it definitely can snowball. (laughs) I've seen that happen before. I think where I get worried too, is we have all of these new policies and standards and, um, you know, in Washington state, at least we have a pretty aggressive energy code. And I sometimes wonder like those things are now policy and required. What are the unintended consequences of, you know, kind of having a blanket requirement or code for certain things? Um, have you, and I'm, this one's putting you on the spot because we haven't talked about this, but have you seen anything in terms of, of code that kind of conflicts with, um, the building operation or the intended design intent? Yeah, I, it's um, a lot of it comes down to interpretation too, because some people will say, okay, well, you know, the, the room was designed to this, or, you know, this is what's in, you know, the, the ASHRAE table or whatnot. And, um, and then not necessarily understanding the intent of it or how codes work is then people think that it's like a thou shalt and you can never, you know, be outside of that range kind of thing. And so then I think some people take it to the extreme of, okay, well, why, why is that to begin with? Right. It's like humidity, for instance. And well, it's because we don't want to hit dew point. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that's really the reason a lot of it. So you're not, you know, creating mold or whatnot. Um, but then it's also where you um, like, I know of a building where they share some uh, heating and cooling. And then, so you have uh, this building that cools data rooms in a building next door. And what happens is that they're trying to recover heat, Right. So then what happens is that they run those rooms so cold that they become a heat sink. And now the boilers in the other building are having to work a lot harder. So then the EUI in that building goes up while the other building looks great, (laughs) kind of, you know, kind of thing. So it's like you have these, uh, I guess, problems that happen because you're, you're trying to, to either meet some targets or you're, um, I guess we're getting off topic here on the code piece, but um, it's all good. <laughs> but but it's also uh, like Seattle has their new energy code that they adopted earlier this year, and so you have people that um, don't want to, or don't or can't upgrade their boilers to maybe more efficient boilers. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're actually not getting more efficient because they don't know what the code's going to be. And so Steve could actually talk to this a lot better, but, um, so now people are not doing energy projects to make them more efficient, like getting condensing boilers, for instance, and lowering their heating water temperatures, um, because then they got to do all this heat pump stuff. And it's like, they don't have the electrical infrastructure to, to do that because they're not allowed to, um, change out their boilers on a scheduled basis. So then you, so you're probably going to have older equipment for longer because you're kind of in limbo of what to do yeah Um, so we're just talking kind of code steve and um kind of unintended consequences of some things yeah yeah you're 
you're putting a huge financial burden on them to just do a what what their capital plan had as just a equipment swap out. Even if it's going more efficient, you can't even do that. So there's they are they're having good conversations internally at the city and at the state level to try and find ways to make the transition more uh, uh, accommodating, I guess, to some of the existing older stock of buildings as well as utilities. I mean, like PSE and S, you know, Seattle City Light aren't just ready to start taking that big pipe of gas that comes into town and converting that all to electricity. There just isn't the supply yet. There, yeah. We can't actually do that. It's certainly the right thing to do over time, and you know this this change in the code. Then you know as buildings come up and need renewal, that is, helps phase it together. But geez, it, it's it's the, the the financial burden is significant on the occupant the building occupants right now, and people don't yet see the infrastructure um, impacts of what it's going to make the utilities do to support that transition. Yeah, I would say whether it's big picture, like you were talking about grid connected buildings earlier, um, and even that down to the occupant level, um, that's one of the lessons I guess I've learned along the way is there's these unintended consequences at all of these different levels where you maybe put something into place, a policy or whatever, and have the best of intentions and then find out later that um, either you can't do that or that problem creates another problem or um, yeah, it can, it can certainly snowball. But having that open conversation, I think, I think there's a, a fairly strong consensus on, on the need to reduce the dependency on gas. And so that yeah. progression, I think, is there. I think really it just needs to be some accommodations along the way and, and, yeah. and, and be okay with being wrong a few times and trying things that don't work and then have the humility to say, yeah, you know what? That didn't quite get us there. Let's try this. Or thanks for the feedback. Let's try this now and be a, yeah. have, a, have a dialogue of how to get there. Um, I think that's I mean, back to our talking about what successful projects look like. It's when both sides kind of have an equal share in the conversation mm-hmm. and, and have the same desired outcome. So then you're just debating how to get there versus whether the end is the right thing to do. Yeah, definitely. I think that sort of takes us full circle to back. I was reflecting a little bit about, you know, maybe the three or four biggest takeaways or outcomes from this conversation. And I could keep talking to you guys for hours, but you're very busy and probably don't want to. So we can stop and have a part two sometime if we want to, but just kind of reflecting back on everything we talked about. I'd, I'd say there's three, three things that have stood out to me and you guys are welcome to add more to this list as well. But um, education seems like a big piece of this, um, whether that's educating the operators, educating the occupants, or um, just knowing like on the design side or operation side, like you said, Martin, all these different resources that are available. Uh, the second one is definitely communication. And again, whether that's between the design team and the owner um, or the communicating the design intent to the building operator or occupants and the operators, I think that communication pathway needs to kind of uh, exist between all of those parties. And then in a lot of the stories that you both shared, there's this idea of balancing complexity, right? And that that kind of filters through whether that's the design or um, even some of these policies and those intents, uh, simple to complex, like how do we start to balance those, whether it's for energy outcomes or it's for comfort or health outcomes, there's a little bit of give and take that has to happen with all of those things. Um, 
any other like big picture topics that you you think kind of came out of this which I don't know it kind of all tidy it all goes together with all the different topics we've talked about which is fun we didn't even plan that it just happened <laughs> good facilitation there Julia. <laughs> thanks I mean I think those are pretty pretty spot on as far as I can tell. I, I, that's kind of what I took away. And that's what I learned from this is, is th those are the communication is one thing that it probably was the common challenge or opportunity 200 years ago. And it, it seems as much technology is, is advanced communication is still, if it were better, <laughs> projects would go smoother and, yeah. and, and new platforms, whether it be Procore or Autodesk or BIM 360, or all these other tools we have, still requires the people to communicate even just yeah. different platforms you're just moving your communication challenges to a different software tool doesn't solve the communication challenge so yeah good point <laughs> yeah anything you'd like to add martin any last words of wisdom yeah i i think that you're pretty much spot on there and um just add on the communication piece and you know thinking code not not saying not saying do this or anything but you know, why, why isn't that communication piece from construction to the building owners? Why is that not required? If, if we, if we're being this aggressive with energy code on, you know, technologies and all this other stuff, like why, why not be more aggressive on the communication of, of having, you know, building intent and, and how this thing's supposed to operate and all that. And, you know, yes, there's commissioning and all these things that happen, but, um, you know, that's all usually last minute, just, um, not necessarily thought through as well on how do you, um, commission this in a way where you're also including the, the occupants or the, the operators of the building or whatnot. Like, is that something that should be in the code? I, I don't know, not saying it is, but <laughs> it, it might be part of the conversation. So from think what, we kinda, what we kind of came away from was this communication piece. So I don't know, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good thought. Any, okay. any last words, Steve? Go Cougs. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to, to chat with me and um, always learn a lot from both of you and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're so busy. And can't wait to get this all produced and, and out there in the world. And uh, I don't know, you sound like some pretty smart people. Yeah. Well, well thanks, Julie. I mean, next, if we talk about a part two, we should have the interview of you because you have some pretty fascinating research too that I'd love to learn more about and, and hear about versus just read your papers, which are interesting. <laughs> but they're academic. I mean, you, you probably have they're academic. Yeah. Have very good stories, <laughs> I imagine, too. So, Martin, we should interview her next yeah, time. Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree because I was interested in some of the stuff that you were talking about before. Yeah, we, we flip, turn the tables. Yeah, put me on the yeah. spot. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Well, thank you again so much. And I hope you all have a happy Wednesday and a good rest of your week. Thanks. You too, Julia. Have a great uh, week and, and uh, keep growing that baby. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> See you yeah, both. Definitely appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, right. thank you. Have a good one. Right. Take yeah. care. Bye. Bye. Good, to, good to see you, Martin. <laughs> good to see you too, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, you guys. Right. Bye. Bye. Yep. Bye.